Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi there, it's Tess here, the producer of The Outer Sanctum. I just wanted to check in before today's episode with a content warning. Nicole Hayes has caught up with uh, incredible footy journalist Russell Jackson. As you may be aware, a lot of Russell's stories are really confronting and deal with some really heavy subject detail. So this episode will be difficult listening for a lot of people and maybe not appropriate listening for some younger members of the household. I'll put in the show notes today a list of resources, uh, websites, phone numbers that you or someone you know can access if you want to chat or you need some help. So I'll put them in the show notes, but um, for now, take it away, Nick. Good plan, good plan. Who thought of this one? You're listening to the Out of Sanctum podcast. Here is a moment in time in the history of the AFL. In from the side, Houghton. She was surrounded by blue jumpers. Groundbreakers, history makers. Welcome to the Outer Sanctum's fifth quarter. I'm your host, Nicole Hayes. I'd like to start by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional custodians of the land where we record this program, and we want to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri elders past and present and extend this respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people from other communities who are listening today. So over the weekend there was another series of revelations about a historical but horrific case of child sexual abuse that took place at yet another of our beloved footy clubs. This time, it's Footscray. The author of this powerful piece is the Walkley and Quill award-winning Russell Jackson, whose incredible work focuses on giving voice to the survivors of abuse. It's a really tough topic, but an important one, and I'm delighted to welcome Russell here today. Thanks for having me. For our listeners who might not be familiar with your most recent article, Russell, can you share with us Adam Neal's story? Sure. So um, Adam was a pretty typical 11-year-old boy from the western suburbs in the mid-80s. You know, he loved music and he loved footy. And when his family relocated from Williamstown to Footscray in 1984, you know, the family considered it a blessing that they were walking distance from the Western Oval, their new house. Um, So, you know, Adam being a footy mad young boy, he rushed straight off to the Western Oval and his parents thought that was a good thing. He was a shy, quite withdrawn little boy who was probably, you know, and, and still is a very sensitive soul. And when he went off to that football club, they saw it as a blessing that footy, as it is for a lot of us, that it would give him some social capital that it would be a um, you know a place where he'd make friends and form connections and be part of a community. Adam's dad had spent a lot of time at the Western Oval as a kid. They were a Footscray family, although they Adam's generation they were Essendon supporters, but they'd grown up in very much a Footscray family. So it was the natural place to go on the weekend to see guys like Simon Beasley and Doug Hawkins play. And unfortunately, 
when Adam did that, he pretty quickly fell into this world. You know, there was a man standing at the top of the stairs of the John Gent stand at the old Western Oval, and Adam was told by another boy that if he went up the stairs to that man in the blue coat, that, you know, he'd get tickets to the footy, he might get some money for, for a pie. Thus began a real spiral for Adam, where that person who was offering those things had an ulterior motive. He was a prolific abuser of children in that area, and Adam was pretty quickly drawn into that world of abuse. He was pretty quickly silenced as well, he didn't know what to do, what 11-year-old would know what to do. And that was the beginning of, of really his life slipping away. Adam's mum, Lynn, said to me he, he fell through the cracks. That was a slow, steady process through his teen years. I guess what, as a parent of a young child, what I, what I found hardest to grapple with in this story was that this kid wasn't a runaway. You know, he wasn't unloved. His mum did everything to protect him. She's an amazing woman and still, despite all the love in their house and all the support and all her concern for him as things were going wrong through his teen years, she still just couldn't, couldn't break through and find out what it was that was troubling him. And that is the power of shame and, and guilt and all of these things that children are made to feel when they're dragged into this world of abuse. So for those who've already read the story they'll know I mean Adam's 49 years old now and and the legacy of that abuse for him for his family for his parents for his children for his wife it controls every aspect of of his life it was an honor to tell his story and it's been phenomenal to I guess experience the wave of appreciation for him you know over a million people read his story on Sunday and I've answered I think 70 emails today if there are people out there listening who email who I haven't responded to I'll get to you eventually but I I had hundreds of emails and and so many messages of support for him so it's been quite amazing how does Adam feel about that response? Is he surprised by it or? He's happy. I mean, it sounds funny to say someone could be happy in this scenario, but what's really pleased Adam and what's pleased me as well is that his story is horrific. It's very distressing to read some of the things that happened to him. I didn't sugarcoat any of that. Part of the reason why I didn't sugarcoat it is that so many people in Adam's position feel as though they're not ever going to be heard, that people shy away from what happened to them. And that compounds their suffering in a lot of situations if people won't even hear them out and listen to their story. I mean, if you think of it, I often tell people with my work, you know, when they say, is that difficult? I say, well, I've listened to it. I haven't had that happen to me. For people who've had this happen to them, to be listened to is a, is a very big thing. So for Adam, in the last few days, that's been a huge thing for him, that he's been listened to, that people have appreciated the full scale of the horror of what happened to him, but that people have also learnt things. That's a huge thing to him, that parents can see some of the educational aspects of the story, which I was you know, conscious to include those things so that people would learn what is it that I look out for. Um, what are the behaviours my child might display if they've fallen into this kind of situation or been dragged into this situation? What is it that I can do 
to listen to a survivor. What What is it like to be this person? You know, the, the sort of journalism I'm doing these days, they're long articles, they're very detailed, but I'm of the view, and, and I'm fortunate that I'm supported to do that work, my view is that a complex issue needs to be explained. You know, you need an in-depth explanation of how this works. You can't do that in a thousand words sometimes. So it's it's an arduous thing for people to read these stories. And I thank them that they do because, you know, a lot of people say to me, well, I, I, it took me four goes, but I got there. And that's a good thing because quite often someone like Adam will begin a story like this and people will just switch off after a certain amount of time. And, and you know, I mentioned that in the article and, the, and it's a pivot point of the article really is that point where you say to yourself, I don't think I can stomach any more of this. And a lot of survivors, that can be a crushing experience to them because that's in their head constantly. They're forced to relive those moments in so many ways for so long. So I really appreciate when people do read the whole thing and absorb the lessons in it. So for Adam in the last few days, I'd say it's gratifying to him that so many people read his story, that so many people have tried to get in touch. But I think that people have said, I now have a greater understanding of how this happens and what it does to a person. It's extra- extraordinarily brave and generous of Adam to share a story in that way because, as you say, so many people will learn from it and will take different things from it. There are so many elements of it that are confronting and shocking and devastating for a lot of football fans, I think, that one of the most challenging aspects is how brazen the acts were and how brazen the perpetrator was um, and how unlikely it seems that nobody knew what was going on. Mm. And that is, I mean, for, for an onlooker but also for survivors, it's one of the hardest things to grapple with, that there was a level of indifference as far as what was happening to them and what the response was, if there was any response. My journey, if you know, I had that word, but it is really, it's, it's been a long path to understanding this issue. That began for me telling Rod Owen's story. When we talk about these institutions, I mean, Rod's very unique in that, you know, what I suppose the pivot point of his life and his abuse, that it occurred you know, in the St Kilda Little League, his first St Kilda jumper he got was from a man who was sexually abusing Rod and a lot of his friends. And that is hard for me to fathom that so much abuse could have occurred at that club. That coach was there for over a decade. He abused hundreds and hundreds of boys. I've personally spoken to a hundred or more survivors of abuse at St Kilda alone and at St Kilda in the story about Carlton that I told and in this one now at Footscray and and Adam certainly wasn't alone in being abused at the club that was something I established in my research is that he was far from the only one who this happened to at Footscray there were multiple offenders there as they were at St Kilda look as far as the institutional environments in which these things occurred of course society was less aware of these issues at the time so we must acknowledge that but these kids were put in uniquely vulnerable positions that footy for a lot of them this is true of rod it's true of adam 
footy was everything and the emotional power of that connection to footy for Rod getting that jumper, for those boys getting the St Kilda jumper, forming the guard of honour as the senior players ran past, running out onto the middle of Moorabbin or VFL Park or the MCG and playing. That silenced them. The perpetrators didn't even have to to do that. You know, the, the very macho culture of footy in that time silenced them. As far as what, what was happening within these clubs for people to not know that abuse was occurring, that's a very hard thing to establish. But I think what these clubs have to grapple with is that in many ways they're beneficiaries of the past. You know, the great aspects of these clubs and why people love them. At St Kilda, we look at the 60s and 70s as the halcyon days of that club when the club was very successful. Certainly Carlton through the 70s, you know, when these things were happening, it was a successful, it had been a successful club. So I'm of the view that these clubs and and Carlton has not addressed the issue at all, really. But I mean, everyone who works in footy administration is in some way a beneficiary of the past because people love the game. There's a, there's a legacy fan base of people who love the game because of that era, because of you know footy in the 60s and 70s and 80s and that nostalgia factor of it. So I think these clubs can't you know be the beneficiaries of the, of those times without dealing with the problems. And this is a very big problem. It's a far bigger problem in footy than people probably realise. And there are a number of reasons why that's the case. I think. The Royal Commission probably didn't help in that regard. The, the, the Royal Commission became about the church almost exclusively. You know, the AFL didn't even give a submission to the Royal Commission, which in hindsight is is ludicrous because I've looked at three, I've only looked at three clubs and three clubs had this problem and I know there were others. So it's something that it administrators need to address this. St Kilda's probably the furthest along the path in doing that. They've made some baby steps, but I just don't think people realise the full extent of this. And and there are many reasons for that. I mean, the one thing that the Royal Commission showed very clearly is that it takes men a very long time to disclose their abuse. There are many reasons why that's the case. But I've interviewed a lot of guys where they'll say, that I'm the first person they've told about their abuse. And in some instances, that's abuse that occurred 50 years ago. So footy's been pretty naive. I was probably among the people who were naive about this issue. But from the things I've uncovered in these stories, it's pretty clear it's something the game needs to actually tackle in a meaningful way. You are one of the few in the media who is covering this abuse and historical uh, abuse in the sporting space, especially in football, there hasn't been a lot of media coverage. When you approach these stories, do you have any particular principles or approaches that you take to ensure that you're able to do it in an informed and sensitive way while still conveying the significance of the story, given the sensitivity of the material? Yeah, uh, certainly you have to, you know, when you're, it's a very serious issue and Although it's not been taken seriously enough by the media and there are people who will come to you who are happy really to have any form of acknowledgement, I think you have to set a fairly high standard of yourself in how you conduct yourself as a journalist. And when I say that, I mean that a trauma-informed interviewing process that's very much guided by what 
that interviewee is comfortable with checking in with them constantly as you interview them whether they need you know on a basic level do you need a break setting very clear boundaries with people what are you wanting to to discuss what do you want to get out of this and a lot of people you know who I speak to they really vary from as I said people who've never told the story to even loved ones through to people who've been through the criminal justice process who've been through civil litigation against the organizations in question I think each but you have to treat each individual as an individual is what I'd say to that because people are at different stages of their journey with confronting what's happened to them. I don't have a rule book as such but I'm quite experienced now in talking to people about this and people I think get a sense pretty quickly that I take it very seriously. You know I sometimes say to my boss that you know, my, my motto is take your job very seriously and, and don't take yourself too seriously. Taking this seriously is is the key thing. And I do take it very, very seriously. As far as what does it take to cover this issue, I'd have to say the ABC has given me amazing support to do this, support that perhaps journalists and other media outlets lack because commercial media works to commercial imperatives, you know, that there are journalists who have to produce a ridiculously high volume of work every day. You know, general assignment reporters could be on any any story any given day. So I'm fortunate in that I get the support and the time that's required to do this because it does take a long time to tell a story like Adam's that can be a three to six month process. Mm. And what's involved in that is sourcing court transcripts. It's interviewing police and legal sources, sometimes interviewing offenders, you know, which I've done quite extensively and and in situations where offenders are still alive, obviously it's a journalistic convention to put questions to them about what you'll be saying in the article. So that process plays out over a very long period of time and 21st century media is not given to allowing journalists that amount of time to do that. So when people say, a lot of people will say to me and survivors say this too, why isn't so-and-so newspaper covering this? Why isn't, you know, part of me thinks, well, yeah, I wish they would. And I wish they would, you know, we could say, well, is it about resources or is it about priorities? But a lot of footy reporters are there to report on football results. And that's just the nature of the business for those businesses they work in. And I would say in fairness to to all of them, it's not really a topic you can just dip your toe into. And it's a very difficult gear change. I would say of the things I've struggled with, it's probably not the work I do. It's the work, you know, that I should be the other work that I should be doing, such as, um, you know, Jamie Mitchell, whose, whose story I told over the summer, who was a promising cricketer, whose career and in many ways whose life was altered by something that happened to him on an Australian under-19s cricket tour. When I told that story, it became very hard for me to file daily match reports on the tests that were happening at that time. So I covered the first three tests of the summer, and I like doing that. The bulk of the work I've done in sports media is that sort of coverage, everyday coverage. But I found that a difficult gear shift to care about a dead rubber Sydney test you know, at the start of January after Jamie's story came out. So I'm fortunate that 
I have a lot of talented colleagues who can step in and do that and bosses who understand, you know, that morning when you wake up and you go, well, I don't really want to write an analysis piece about Manus Labuschagne today, you know, um, about his gritty 65. It, it's That part of it is difficult. I think when you bury yourself in this issue, it becomes a little bit difficult to make yourself care about the results of, of sporting contests and that there'll be a period where I get back into doing some of those sorts of things and that's no disrespect to the fans of those those sports and the people you know these phenomenal athletes who do these things but when I'm covering that I want to be giving it my full attention not be distracted by things so in the sense of why does the media not cover it I mean I've just gone in depth on a couple of things there but a general comment would be that people just don't like talking about childhood sexual abuse it's a difficult topic it challenges people in many ways for generations it's been left unsaid and that's part of the problem really and one thing about Adam's story and how devastating it is and how graphic that story was is that it it needs to be people need to know the reality of these situations and what people like Adam deal with so for a long time survivors have lacked that outlet I think and Certainly for decades, a lot of better journalists than me have been doing amazing work covering childhood sexual abuse and in institutional contexts. But I really think sport has been overlooked within that field. That's changed a lot in America and Europe in the last five to 10 years. But the stuff that I cover, I guess, has been, it's been footy and cricket and it just, nobody's paid it any attention before. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You talked before about the importance for Adam in particular, but it sounds like for many survivors of abuse, of being heard, of being listened to. What's the role of apology here too? It seems to be something that comes up quite a bit in terms of have the various organisations involved apologise? Is that something that matters to the survivors of abuse? It absolutely does. I mean, talk is cheap as well, I would say, so that the apology isn't everything. But one thing I would say in the credit of St Kilda, Matt Finnis, their CEO, when I've sat down with Matt and talked about these things, his reactions have been as a human being and as a father. His statements that he's put out on behalf of the club, I think, reflect that sensibility too. That is something that survivors value definitely. A contrast to that, I mentioned that in an article yesterday, it is the approach of Carlton, which was you know, a statement that made no apology, that didn't even use the word sexual abuse and really just, you know, deferred to police and it didn't address survivors in any way. And that's, you know, in some ways, it sounds dramatic, but it's a secondary form of abuse that people feel. 
when it's uncovered and it's it's made public that this abuse occurred in an institution and that institution acts as though, you know, they're almost talking about as though it's some other organisation, you know, that it's in the past, that it's not the current iteration of the club, which in some ways that's true, but Carlton is a club that prides itself on its history and this is a part of its history that it has failed to deal with in any meaningful way. That statement that they put out after the story was the only public acknowledgement they've made of the story. I don't think it was covered anywhere else. Maybe they feel some vindication in that because it's never been spoken about since. That story was published in July, I think, last year, and it's just never come up again. So maybe from a crisis management perspective, they would see that as a success, but the message that sends to survivors is very uninspiring. And I know having spoken to those guys, I mean, I felt horrible myself because some of those guys were so giving of their their time and their memories. And as I said, these are guys, some of them, you know, their wives didn't know what had happened to them. And they're prepared to pour their heart out and tell you for the public good, yes, this happened and it needs to be acknowledged. And then the club just sort of, yeah, the club didn't deal with it. So on a personal level, I mean, I'm not, I'm not necessarily saying this on a journalistic level. On a personal level, to have conversations with survivors after that, um, you hear it in their voice how how deflating that is when, you know, it was just inadequate. I, I, I thought that the response in that case was inadequate. The Bulldogs over the weekend, I think they have said exactly what they should have said. And, and I think, you know, speaking to a meet for a couple of hours last week, I think he reacted much the same as Matt did with horror as a father, you know, and I think that's genuine. But that's one side of it. I think the, the public acknowledgement, I always say to you know, I said to Amit and I, I, I said to Matt as well, when you do come out, the first thing you say, you need to make sure it's the right thing because you're not just addressing stakeholders and members, you're addressing members and often past players who are survivors. So keep in mind that you're addressing them too when you when you make that statement. And I think both of those clubs, the statement itself was good, but I mean, it's a long, long road to repair the damage that's been done here. So I think even St Kildare year on are at the very beginning of that process of working through it. What's the role for the AFL here? Well, I mean, they've played no role so far. The AFL didn't give a submission to the Royal Commission. My reporting about abuse in the Little League, they really distanced themselves from that. They said um, they pointed to the fact that it was so far in the past and it just hasn't been addressed. I mean, that's that's a huge frustration, I know, to Rod Owen, you know, because Rod's hugely significant in this and in my work. I think if it wasn't for him, he really gave a lot of men courage to, to tell their stories. That was certainly the case for Jamie, um, was really emboldened by what Rod had done. And then in turn, Adam was inspired by what Jamie had done. So Rod sort of started a chain reaction there of men who are, prepared to say, you know, put their hand up. That's a bigger sacrifice than people realise, not just in your personal life, but that every single person who walks up to Rod in his life from now, they know the story, you know, and that and that changes the perception of that person, that he's not just a footballer, that he's a survivor. And the AFL, you know, to, to go back to your question, I mean, it, it's frustrating to someone like Rod that he sacrificed so much to tell his story. 
his daughter sacrificed so much. Kylie, his partner, Susan, his former partner, they all have sacrificed so much. And they look around and they say, well, what's the AFL done about this? Has there been an investigation, even an informal investigation? No, there's been nothing. So that's disheartening to people. But I also think that for some people, it strengthens their resolve a bit to keep telling the story and to get it out there. So I can't speak for what their thinking is, um, but the, you know, the AFL, they've, they've really done nothing. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure what else I can say about that. Mm. I wonder if there's anything community, like what community can do to apply pressure this, where it needs to be applied or perhaps to um, generate broader coverage in the media perhaps might be a way of forcing these organisations, whether it's the AFL or other clubs who undoubtedly will have at least have questions to ask. Perhaps that's one way of, of driving change, do you Maybe, think? I, I mean, unfortunately, a lot of this is generally led by litigation. And that's the thing that, you know, these organisations tend to respond to is the threat of litigation, unfortunately. I think the standard should be a little bit higher for organisations that position themselves as beacons of the community in the way that the AFL does and in the way that some of these clubs do. You know, Footscray very much positions itself as a community-minded club, and it has for some time. And, and that local community saved the club in 1989 too. So, you know, there's a big disconnect there between what some of these organisations say about themselves and the outcomes that occur for, for people, for the people who come off worst. So I think if, if you measure these organisations by, you know, how they throw their arms around the people who've been hurt, that is the measurement of the organisation to me, not how many premierships they win or um, their profit and loss. You know, uh, and I think there's a lot of, you know, gestures made by, by some of these clubs you know, with regards to to their position in the community that start to ring a bit hollow when they're not dealing with these things. You've covered a lot of really difficult stories. I'm, I've read them all and um, been confronted by them and, had, as you say, had to take breaks. I found them really challenging and I'm getting upset even thinking about it now. Um, writing them, I can't even imagine the toll that would take on you. How do you manage the balance between being that sensitive listener, but also protecting yourself from the horror of these stories? It's difficult. I would say people, well, journalists who can do it should do it, and I can do it, so I think I should. I'm less influenced, I think, in what I do as a journalist by journalism than I am by the people around me. My wife has certainly been a big influence on the way I think about the world even if I look back on it, I think my parents, you know, this, it, it might seem like a funny thing to say, but one of the biggest influences on my journalism is, you know, my parents, they, they have a, a denture clinic. My dad's a dental prosthetist. And as a kid, I spent a lot of time in there answering the phone and doing various things. And, um, you know, my dad, um, sorry, I didn't think this would make me emotional. You know, my dad... Um, <clears throat> Dad, dad always um, helped people, you know, like if you lose your teeth, you're in a very vulnerable position. Um, 
and time after time I'd see, you know, we're from Frankston, so it's it can be pretty rough around here and certainly where Dad's surgery is, is, is a pretty rough part of town and he's been there since the late 70s. So you get all sorts of people walk in and, and I guess the view of dentistry is that it's it's quite a glamorous profession and you earn a lot of money and don't lose a tooth because it's going to cost you a fortune. Well, what I saw is that, you know, my dad didn't turn back a single person who, who walked in missing their teeth. You know, something I've thought about <clears throat> a lot lately is a client of his, um, you know, who'd been a... Um, he'd been a physio at a cricket club I played at. He'd been a huge help to me. I had back injuries from fast bowling that ended up finishing me as a cricketer. Um, but this guy had helped me a lot. He was a he was a masseur and he fell on hard times and I didn't really understand it at the time. You know, I think I would be better qualified now. Obviously, I was a teenager at the time and I just didn't really understand what was happening to this guy but he had a major struggle in life with alcoholism and I'd be in it you know dad's surgery quite a lot and and that guy would come in and he had his teeth smashed again or he'd lost them or he'd and every time he came in you know dad would make him another set of teeth and that you know giving people that dignity I suppose is a big part of his job <clears throat> that influenced me I think is that there are a lot of people who will put someone in the too hard basket and say this is a bad scene I don't want to get involved in this this looks too difficult what's wrong with this person and I'm fortunate in my work that I get an opportunity to not have to turn those people away and say this is too difficult I suppose sorry that came out of nowhere a bit getting upset about that but it's it's probably at the core of um <clears throat> I guess that's a that's a family tradition that when you see someone struggling like that, you know, you just have to do something about it. And in Rod's case, it was an interesting path to telling Rod's story because I'd been interested in that for a number of years. I'd always wondered about Rod. I just thought there was more to his story. Some of your listeners will probably be familiar with Robert Muir's story, which I told two years ago. And I've said this to Robbie and Rod. I was actually, I was trying to write Rod's story when I came across Robbie. I was doing some research about Rod and I found all these clippings about Robbie. We went on this big path of telling Robbie's story and that obviously moved people you know finding out what really happened to him too but at the end of that process with Robbie I said to him oh well I'm, I'll admit I, I was actually looking into Rod Owen's story when I found all this stuff about you. Robbie said oh well you won't believe this but I spoke to Rod recently and he said oh Robbie pass on the number of that journalist who did your story and I said to Robbie is there more to Rod's story because I, I feel like there is. And Robbie said, yeah, there is, give him a call. And then, you know, that was that was late in 2020 and what's it, 18 months on now. I'm amazed. In some ways, you know, I feel like I would do a lot better job of Rod's story now than I did then, but it's been a learning process. And Rod, one thing Rod did was look beyond just himself. And that's why I've ended up doing a lot of this stuff is that Rod sat me down with a photo of his junior footy team. And he went through the faces one by one and told me the stories of those guys. Mm -hmm. And at least three quarters of them had been abused by the same abuser as Rod. 
I found that unfathomable. Part of me thought, is he exaggerating? And I started looking into some of those stories and that led me, you know, into a pretty dark place. And I, I sometimes say to Rod, it was, it was almost like, you know, he walked me into a, into a really dark tunnel and it was like we had a torch each. And then the more people we found, it was like that there were more torches in that, in that dark tunnel. So I hope Adam's story does that for people too, that it gives people who've been in similar positions. And, and that's certainly, but I mean, the emails I've got in the last couple of days indicate that that is the case, that people, they're gaining some courage out of him telling his story and, and the validation that it does, that a story like that does matter. You know, he's not a celebrity. He wasn't a footballer, but, you know, his, his story mattered to me. I knew if it mattered to me, it would matter to other people. And, and that's certainly been the case. It's certainly been the case. It's mattered to many, many people, as does all the work that you do. You, Russell, have been a friend and ally to the Outer Sanctum from the beginning, and you have been doing fighting the good fight for a really long time. But uh, this is whole next level. So I wish there were likely to be no more stories of this kind. I suspect that's not the case, but I feel confident that in your hands, things can only get better. Thank you so much Thanks for your time, Russell. No, thank you for, for having me on. And it, it, it's funny, you know, just that telling that story about my dad is a classic example of this sort of work. I mean, generally speaking, I hold it together pretty well when I do this work. And I have a re very rigid process that I stick to and I don't lose control of my emotions. And then, of course, you sit down and talk about it with someone sometimes and and that kind of thing happens. But, but I suppose what I was trying to say is that, you know, in journalism, you don't have to be afraid of, of being a human being. And I, as I said, I think I'm very influenced by my parents in the way they treat people and, and not giving up on people and giving them that dignity. So I just hope, you know, there are people out there probably listening who have their own stories and, you know, deep down they might wonder if they matter and people like Adam and Rod and Jamie and Glenn Finn and even a guy, a, an old schoolmate of Rod's who, who told me his story, he said, well, I'm nobody, what does my story matter? And, and it mattered a lot to me. I went along with Glenn and some others on, on Sunday when Adam's story came out. We tied some ribbons on the fence at St Kilda Football Club and a couple of other places where, the, where those guys suffered immensely as boys. Those sorts of days you have, you know, where people who thought maybe in the past this isn't something that anyone wants to know about for them to get together and tie those ribbons on the fence at Moorabbin. On Sunday, it's, it's, a, it's a validation of their stories. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.